Welcome back to the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of this show. Be a part of this podcast success by becoming a Patreon member. Get more content with a simple $5 monthly donation. The Sharp End is brought to you by Rocky Talkies. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers in Denver, Colorado. One of my favorite things about this company is their pledge to support volunteer search and rescue teams. I'm excited to let you know that they just announced the winners of their 2023 Search and Rescue Award, an award that recognizes the three most inspiring rescues from the prior year. This year, renowned filmmaker and climber John Glassberg created a short film for each of the rescues. These films offer a rare glimpse into the heroic efforts made by the volunteer search and rescue teams to keep us safe in the backcountry. Watch the films and vote for the most inspiring rescue of the year at rockytalkie.com slash 2023SAR award. Voting closes August 11th at midnight. This link is also in the show notes. Ecuador is one of my all-time favorite mountaineering destinations. Summoning Cotopaxi was worth all the suffering and effort, and I thank my mentors Vicki Kerr and Chris Benson for pushing me to get there. This episode sponsor, the American Alpine Institute, has been running high-altitude glacier mountaineering programs in Ecuador on iconic peaks like Cayambe, Chimborazo, Antisana, and even Cotopaxi since the early 1980s. These volcanoes, ranging in altitude from 19,000 to nearly 21,000 feet, provide an excellent venue for both beginner and intermediate climbers alike. To find out more about entry-level high-altitude climbing in the beautiful country of Ecuador, log on to alpineinstitute.com. I highly recommend climbing these peaks with the American Alpine Institute. On October 25th, 2014, Derek set out with three of his close friends to base jump off the Rhone Plateau in Rifle, Colorado. It was his last jump of the season before winter started to creep in. Within seconds of jumping off the plateau, he realized something wasn't right. He looked up and saw that his lines were twisted. With an off heading and a line twist malfunction, he quickly spun around and violently slammed into the cliff. And did you know that about 80% of base jumping fatalities are caused by cliff strikes? Listen in to this episode to hear exactly what went wrong, all about his epic evacuation story, and why he's eager to share this nightmare of an experience. I hope you enjoy. Well, everybody, welcome to welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast. I'm Ashley, your hostess, and I have Mr. Derek here with me to talk about a brand new incident that I've never actually talked about on the show. So I'm super psyched to get to know a little bit more about what uh, this this sport is and what can happen in this sport. So um, Derek, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and then we'll take it from there. Awesome. Uh, hey, I'm Derek Demianic. Um, I'm 32 years old. I'm, I'm currently living in Salt Lake City um, at the time of this accident. So first of all, this is a story about a base jumping accident that occurred uh, to myself in 2014. So this is almost 10 years old at this point, nine years ago. Um, but I didn't really talk about it or open up about it for a while, but uh, I am now and have been for the last couple of years. And so I'm happy to share the story. And um, so I was, yeah, I was uh, 
living in Colorado at that time. Where in Colorado? And so I was living in Colorado Springs. I had just graduated from the Air Force Academy. I'm a, a military guy, um, former Air Force pilot, current Air Force engineer. And this accident happened uh, on October 25th of 2014. And I left for pilot training, I think in March of 15. So it was, it had the potential to affect my pilot training, which is one of the reasons I didn't talk about it for a long time. Oh, that's really uh, interesting. Cause if you talked about it, if you, if you're open about the incident for your base jump, your base jumping incident, it would have, you think it would have affected your, your military background? It could have. And that's one of the, one of, one of the parts of the story is that the reason we didn't call a helicopter was because there's kind of a gray area on whether or not the Air Force is chill with base jumping. Um, I was on the Air Force parachute team and everyone, my, me and my four buddies that were with me for this, were all uh, on the Air Force skydiving team previously. And we had just um, been graduated from the academy and, and got off the team in that May. So the team had a strict no base jumping rule. And, but once we were off the team, we were like, all right, it's free reign. Like, you know, and then um, we're not really sure. There's kind of a gray area. Like maybe the Air Force would have been cool with it and covered the helicopter ride. But we also had a friend who was like paragliding a couple months earlier and crashed and had to get life lighted. And they were like, maybe we'll make him pay for it. Maybe we won't since he didn't have the certain paperwork. So it was just all this gray area. That's stressful. That's stressful when you're like (laughs) trying to think about being rescued. It's stressful like, okay, can I get in trouble for this or... I'm going to pay for this or is this going to affect my future career? And also thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. No problem. My pleasure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still active. That's a whole other story um, that I, I actually love talking about now too. I was actually uh, medically disqualified from flying because uh, I chose to get treatment for depression and I'm super happy to talk about all that, but I'm an engineer now and I love it. Um, but that's a story for another time. Cool. Well, thanks <laughs> for sharing. Um, Okay, so you th- this accident happened. You said you, you were in Colorado Springs. I lived in Colorado Springs. Um, your listeners should be familiar with Rifle, Colorado, because there's a lot of climbing on here. Um, there's a big climbing spot in Rifle, and that's where the accident happened. Um, and base jumpers know about Rifle, too. Um, fun fact, actually, there are three base jumping accidents I know of at the spot that I was injured. One is myself, one is from a guy named Ted Davenport, and then the third is uh, Steph Davis, who was life-flighted off that spot. Oh, wow, she <laughs> is a I've actually, Yeah, I've talked to her about it a couple times, actually. Um, I ran into her in Moab last year when I was moving to Salt Lake, and we talked about it again. And uh, I was like, yeah, the 10-year anniversary of my accident's coming up in 2024. I'm thinking about jumping the Rhone again. And she was like, fuck that. That cliff sucks. Do not jump it. <laughs> so she talked me out of it, actually. Um, but, but yeah, um, that's the initial backstory, I suppose. So you, did, you moved to Salt Lake, you said, last year? Yep, a military assignment here. So I'm coming up on my, my time to choose to stay in or get out. I'm about 10 years and um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. You don't have to decide right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My boss is going to listen to the, no. Yeah. Um, and then what have you been up to lately? Yeah. So I actually am fresh off of Mount Baker. And um, I just uh, just climbed Mount Baker for the second time. First time to get to the summit, though. 
and got back to Salt Lake at like 1 a.m. this morning. And I got to give a shout out to uh, Aiden, my guide. Me and my buddy Brian climbed with uh, with Aiden from Northwest Alpine Guides, and we absolutely smoked it. He said we set the client record uh, for our speed time. <laughs> so, yeah, we were like blitzing past people on our rope team. It was really fun. Uh, and you got back at 1 a.m.? Like today? 1 a.m. today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I went to work today, and, and now we're here. Wow, you're a savage. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Okay, well, tell us the story. What happened? Yeah, so the way I like to tell this story is to start off with some of my lessons learned, and then you can see where they pop up as I talk about it. Um, And these will make sense more as we go. So lesson one is set boundaries and be mindful of lawyering. And I'll explain what that means. Two, uh, beware of weather windows pushing your decision-making. Three, Apollo 13 that shit. And uh, Apollo 13 is a verb there. And I'm an aerospace engineer, so you'll see where that comes up. Four, know the exact purpose of every item in your first aid kit. And five, get friends like mine slash know your crew. <clears throat> so those are kind of a good like gui- like lighthouse to guide the way for the story. But... Um, so set it, setting boundaries and be mindful of lawyering. I'll explain that a little bit. Base jumping is a really unique sport. And uh, those, the reason I picked those lessons learned is because they're common across all adventure sports. They're not specific to base jumping. And so for this story, <clears throat> like I said, it was my first season of base jumping. I had just gotten off the parachute team. I had 700 skydives, a lot of parachuting experience. Jeez. <laughs> got into to base jumping kind of like very methodically, like I wanted to do it the right way. Um, so there are safer jumps and more dangerous jumps. Well, can base you just explain is... really quick what base jumping is? Like give us, give us a yeah. kind of paint a picture of what the heck that sport even is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of overlap with the climbing community, the adventure community, the skiing community, and the base jumping community. And Uh, base jumping is just parachuting off of fixed objects, which is what makes it different than skydiving. It's not out of an airplane or a hot air balloon or some other moving object. It's a fixed object jump. So cliffs base stands for building antenna span earth. Um, span is just a bridge, anything that spans a a Canyon or something. Um, and then there are other objects that aren't classified that are still base jumps like crane or nuclear silo or like random stuff. Um, I guess those are buildings maybe. Um, but the, the gear is totally different too. And this, there are a lot of skydivers that say base jumping is completely dangerous and I would never do it. Um, so it's a lot different than skydiving, but skydiving is the road in. Like I actually had a guy reach out to me on Instagram today. Like, how do I get into base jumping? And I was like, well, start with 150 to 200 skydives. And then, you know, then think about it. That's the general road in. Okay. Um, so it was my first season and the safest kind of objects in, in base jumping are bridges because if your parachute opens backwards, you just fly right under them and you don't smack into them. And 
secondly, our terminal. Okay, that's a, I'll use those terms a lot. So I want to explain what terminal and subterminal Thank are. Thank you, because I have literally <laughs> no idea what those terms mean. <laughs> I've never yeah. based jump before, so I've seen it. I've seen it done a couple times. Um, we should arrange that. But I, There's but I really have no idea. Yeah, I, that's that's one of the things. That's why I'm glad to have your feedback because in my mind everything's like makes sense. Um, so in base jumping in general, I, I've I never know how to like how much to dumb this down. Dumb um, it down, my friend. <laughs> dumb it down for this little Alaskan. Uh, in general, there's two two categories of jumps, and I there uh, for this story, there's three categories of jumps. Um, so there's terminal jumps, which in, uh, the term in parachuting, terminal velocity, has nothing to do with dying. It is simply just the speed, the maximum speed you can accelerate to in the atmosphere. And so terminal velocity is about 120 miles an hour for a, a human body in free fall. Like if you jump out of an airplane, you'll start falling and you'll about 10 seconds in, you'll hit 120 miles an hour. And at that point... <laughs> The, the acceleration due to gravity will be canceled out by the wind resistance and you won't you won't keep you'll still stay 120 until you deploy your parachute are your cheeks just like this the whole time like <laughs> yeah kind of um and that's a rough that's a rough uh, uh estimate you can go head down or you can get up to like 200 plus miles an hour if you really turn yourself into a dart but the normal skydiving position the belly to earth position is um, 120 miles an hour. So when you're on a terminal base jump, you basically have enough time to reach 120 miles an hour. And the rough numbers there are an object that is 1,000 feet or higher. That'll give you about 10 seconds or more of free fall, which will allow you to hit terminal velocity before you deploy your parachute. That's relatively a safe-ish kind of jump. A terminal object, for example, not that you would jump off of this, but L cap is a terminal object. If um, one was to, if hypothetically, if one was to go there, um, it's very similar to L cap is a, a Sherog in Norway. It's basically like a fjord of just never ending L caps. And I went there about a couple months before this accident. And we were just, you know, getting 20, 25 seconds of free fall off these 3000 foot cliffs. So those are terminal objects and they allow you to, to do what's called tracking where you like turn your body into a little plank and fly forward once you hit enough air airspeed to fly. And so if your parachute opens backwards on a terminal object, you're way far away from the object because you've been tracking away from it for a couple seconds. So that's a that's one category of object. The second safe-ish category of object is uh, subterminal. So let me talk about subterminal actually. Subterminal objects are essentially anything less than that, but um, to, to get to some of the specifics, really subterminal objects are five seconds and 500 feet and less and below. So if you're jumping off an object that is basically between as low as you can jump, maybe 120 feet, all the way up to 500 feet, and you have one, two, three, four, five seconds possible of free fall that's all considered subterminal and you pack your parachute differently for that actually so it opens much quicker it's called a slider off or slider down we don't really need to talk about the specifics of parachute packing but basically understand that five seconds and below is a subterminal object and you pack slider off 
10 seconds and above is a terminal object and you pack slider up, the, rate, the range in between from 500 feet to 1,000 feet is probably the most dangerous category of object. And that's what my accident was on. And that's why I explained that. Because you're not subterminal and you're not terminal. And the way you pack your parachute is not really ideal for either. And so I call it the not quite terminal realm. Um, and that's between 500 feet and 1,000 feet, anywhere between five to 10 seconds of free fall. And um, I could get into the physics of it because I'm a, an engineer and a physics nerd, but a parachute deploying, it, you pack your parachute for a, a slider up because if you pack it slider down, it'll open too quickly, but you're not going terminal yet. So it doesn't open. So it's designed, a, <laughs> a parachute's designed to open in terminal airspeeds when it's slider up. And there's no way to really pack it like slider in the middle for like so a middle terminal other. jump. So it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. So if you, so, so your heading performance, your parachute has more time to like, I call it jellyfish and squiggle around. And that's that uh, not quite terminal realm. And that's exactly what happened to me and caused me to, to have my accident. So with that groundwork laid, there I was <laughs> in, uh, in rifle Colorado on the Rhone plateau. Um, there's, if you're driving, from Denver to uh, Salt Lake on Highway 70, and you look up north to your right, you can see the Rhone Plateau. Mm -hmm. It's just this beautiful cliff band. Um, And and there's exit points, which is what a base jumping spot is called, all across it. And you can see Highway 70 from the exit points. It's like pretty... Accessible. Pretty accessible, yeah. Not super hard backcountry, you know, stuff. And, um, probably a short approach. Kind of, uh, the, so the way you run this operation at the Rhone plateau, if you're going to base jump, it's BLM land. So it's like Moab, um, is you, you drive your car up the backside of the Rhone plateau on some dirt roads. And that actually is the longest part of the operation. It's about three or four hours from highway 70 to get from like highway 70 off up the backside of the mountain to the exit point but you can drive your car all the way up to the spot you jump at. And then from this exit point, there's an 800 foot vertical cliff. So right in that not quite terminal realm. And then there's a 2000 ish foot talus that you like fly your canopy down once your canopy opens and you land in this like little shitty meadow thing on the side of a hill on the talus and then you hike out of that landing zone for about an hour and get picked up um, at the pickup spot, which is another dirt road. And so what you do is you have a ground crew who drives your car off the top of the mountain, four hours around the back to come around to the front to pick you up. So one jump there. Yeah. One (laughs) jump there. You can do about two jumps a day. And I was up there with my four roommates at the time. The five of us, like I said, we're all parachuting guys. Me and my friend Brandon were jumping, and Stormy and Sam were the ground crew. So there are actually only four of us. Our fifth roommate was uh, painting. He decided to skip the jump and, and paint in his studio that weekend. Um, but he ended up being a part of the rescue team. <laughs> Story for the future. <laughs> future part in the two. next couple moments. Part two. Um, so Brandon and I jumped, and Sam and Stormy drove my car for the ground crew. Um, the plan was to do 
one jump in the mornings and one jump in the evening Saturday, one jump in the morning and one jump in the evening Sunday, and then drive back to Colorado Springs Sunday night. Um, and so for this jump, we drove up Friday night, stayed in rifle, and then we woke up Saturday morning for the first jump of the trip. So we got up to, we drove my car up to the exit point and got there around eight, eight thirty, and started gearing up. Um, and it was beautiful. The sun started shining like beautiful, clear skies, um, no wind, which is exactly what you want. And the, it works out well because you don't want to jump in the middle of the day there because it is a south-facing cliff and south-facing talus. And in the middle of the day, the sun heats up that talus and like bakes it out and it creates all kinds of crappy winds. So 9 a.m. was the perfect time to jump, like nice and warm, but not yet hot, no thermals, nice calm wind. Um, and and that's, you know, that that we're getting close like that we're getting getting geared up like getting the nerves You're psyched uh psyched like going to be a sick weekend um so i want to i want to touch on setting boundaries and being mindful of lawyering so my boundary is my first season of base jumping um this was actually my 33rd jump which for people in your jump, first season yeah. Wow, you really got after it. You're like, I like this. Three times in a row. <laughs> and that was, you know, I racked up a lot of those in Twin Falls, Idaho on the bridge, which is a safe object. As I said, safe bridges for subterminal, the safest type of objects are bridges. And then I went to Norway and was on these safe terminal cliffs. So this was definitely the most dangerous object I had jumped yet. And my boundaries that I set for myself my first season of base were I'm not going to jump any solid slider down objects, which are considered dangerous. So if you remember what we talked about, slider down is like the sub terminal, the shorter jumps. And um, a solid slider down object is like a cliff or a building that is in that realm. So for example, pretty much every cliff in Moab is a solid slider, excuse me, slider down object, which are considered dangerous and not for beginners, not for your first season. You need more experience and how to avoid the object if your parachute happens to open backwards. Some people jump those objects for their first jumps. Like, you know, people do what they want, but in general, solid slider down objects are dangerous. And so that's why I stuck to bridges. So that a bridge is not solid because you can fly under it. So, so uh, I jumped the bridge and I was like, I'm not going to do any solid slider down objects. But what I convinced myself of was that this cliff in rifle was not a solid slider down object because it was taller than 500 feet. So in my mind, it was closer to a terminal object, which I had jumped in Norway, which are considered safe, than it was to the dangerous objects in Moab. So that's why I said, talk about lawyering. I had a base jumper about five years ago say like I was telling him the story and he's like, man, it sounds like you really lawyered yourself into that one. Mm. Like you had your own boundary you set, but then you used this like lawyering tactic to convince yourself yourself into it. Yeah. Like, Oh, this in my mind, I was like, this object is way more like Smellvegen, which is this cliff in Norway that you only take a six second delay off of. Um, So you open up really high and fly your canopy back to the the bar (laughs) um, at night. And so I was like, this jump's totally safe. It's like more, it's more like a terminal object. 
It's not a solid slider down object, but in, in hindsight, in reality, it's actually more dangerous because it's in that middle ground and Mm -hmm. it's, it's not defined as either. So instead of just like calling a spade a spade, I was like, Oh, I'll probably be fine. You know, it's not, no one's going to, you know, it's not a solid slider down object. So like the base lawyers aren't going to tell me I'm being too dangerous. I'm just going to get away with this one. And that brings me to the second point, which was beware of weather windows pushing your decision making. So this was October 25th of 2014. And I remember vividly that the forecast was calling for snow a week after this weekend, which was going to close off that exit point for the rest of the season. So this was our last weekend of the, the summer the, you know, to get this jump off before the snow was going to make the exit point inaccessible. Mm-hmm. It's called scary. I mean, scarcity. It's the, it's a heuristic trap scarcity where okay. this is it. This is it. This is my only chance to do this until next season, you know, and then you feel like you just have to cram it in and so you make exactly. things work. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that, so those two factors, like the whole lawyering thing, like I was like, I probably shouldn't be doing this my first season, but it's, it's a legal jump stateside, like pretty tall. And my friends had gotten away with doing it in their first season. And it was like all these things stacking on top of each other to make me think like, you know, I can, if they can do it. I can do it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, so my buddy, Brandon, who was my roommate, who was taking me out to get my first jump off this object had jumped it before. And he had about the same experience that I had. Um, but he went out there with with our buddy Caleb this is another thing that you'll realize in base jumping sports so Caleb was the one who showed us this spot he unfortunately passed away mm-hmm. wingsuit skydiving in 2017 and then another guy that I want to give a shout out to John Van Horn JVH he passed away in a wingsuiting accident in 2016 uh, in the Alps but he sold me my parachute and he helped me help give me some advice on this jump too. He actually told me to, I was like, Hey, I know this is a kind of dangerous object. What's your advice? And he was like, Oh dude, bring your wingsuit. So yeah, JVH was, he's a big wingsuiter was. And uh, he was like, yeah, bring your wingsuit as a joke. Um, Cause he wingsuits off that object, which at the time when people started doing it was wild because it's pretty low, but nowadays people wingsuit off stuff in Moab. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, well, so rest in peace fr- to those guys. Yeah, rest in peace to those guys. Yeah. They're they're great dudes, and anyone who knows them, you know, will remember them fondly. And uh, and and uh, so Brandon was taking me out to this spot. He had experience there. We lawyered. I lowered myself into into it. The weather window was closing in. You know, the stage is set. But wait, did really quick? Did you feel at the time? that you were luring yourself into it or did you feel at the time that you were confident and like you could do it or, or or is it hard to know? Cause it's, you know, hindsight's 2020, right. But no, that's actually a great point. And that's something I wanted to, to mention is at the time it did not feel like, that's why I say be aware of lawyering, yeah, like, okay. cause you don't realize it till after the fact it's right. like, Oh, I totally was like, you know, at the time it was totally justified in my mind. I knew it was dangerous, but I didn't realize quite how how much I was uh, getting outside my comfort zone until after the fact. Um, so, so Brandon jumped before me. He jumped first because he's jumped this spot before, and um, and he laid out his parachute. And he, so this was the plan. He'll lay out his parachute in the direction of the winds, radio up to me. We had radios. We had uh, great cell service in that area. Um, this is just some tidbits. I was jumping with a store-bought first aid kit in my cargo pocket 
and a water bottle in my other cargo pocket and a radio. Um, Sam and Stormy, who are our ground crew up at the exit, had radios and Brandon had a radio. So we had comms, we had a plan. Um, it was getting to be nine o'clock. The weather was great. You know, everything was great. Brandon jumped and we were all nervous and it went great. <laughs> His parachute opened great. He had jumped it before and he flew down to the landing area. We were all cheering, landed, laid out his parachute, and now it was my turn. And something to to point out, again, is our this is another probably lesson learned, but our plans changed throughout the night and the morning. So we packed our parachute slider up with plans to take a six-second delay. This is, I, I won't explain too much of this because you can go really, really down the rabbit hole with all this. Um, which is the more delay you take with a slider up pack drop, the better. But we realized on the way up there that we wanted to have more time for me under canopy to scope out the landing area since I had never seen it. So even though my parachute was packed for a six second slider up delay with slider up, Brandon and I decided we would take like a, a two second delay before deploying the parachute to have more time to set up for the landing. So that's even more compounding the errors and the potential for harm in this scenario. So my parachute was packed to open one way, made a kind of late get late in the game decision. And instead of repacking the parachutes, which would have, so if we would have repacked the parachutes, that would have in my mind changed it to a, a solid slider down object, which was on my no off limits list. Can't jump those objects. So we just kept this pack job in and just did this. So you're whole really lawyering. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. um, so you can see how these things are compounding. But like I said, Brandon did it just fine. My friend Caleb used to do it all the time. And he actually recommended that. He had, Caleb, the guy I mentioned, unfortunately passed away. He actually used to recommend, even if you take a short delay, pack slider up, because it'll open you more nicely in the overhung part of the cliff. But um, that was all shit beta, <laughs> as we'll soon find out. Mm-hmm. So, so all these things are compounding. I have a slider up pack job in my container on my back. Um, weather's great. I jump and take my short delay, one or two seconds, pitch my par- my pilot chute to deploy my parachute, and instantly, as it starts opening, I'm I'm like my lizard brain is activated. You know, I'm in I'm in. Anytime you base jump, you're kind of in that that cerebral primal like uh, fight or flight mode where time slows down and and um, your reaction times are really heightened and you feel like you're, you know, on the, I always describe it as I feel like I'm on the like very edge of this dimension. Like everything is just really heightened and I feel like I could almost reach into another dimension. And, um, and the second my parachute starts opening, I can feel just the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Like this is not right. Um, It felt like it was opening a little too slow not kind of giving me the, the, the momentum change that I was anticipating. But then like in a split second, my mind was like, no, that's, um, that's because you're packed a certain way and it's opening and you're not taking proper delay. You're not six seconds. You're only two seconds. It's going to feel a little slower. Um, but what was happening while it was opening slowly is the parachute started to do a 180 degrees, like turn to the right. And for some reason, my body, as my body started to get pulled up right under it, my body kind of pivoted 180 degrees to the left. 
So I, so it's hard to, to envision, but I opened when my parachute finally kind of somewhat opened up, I was facing the cliff uh, my body was facing the cliff and my parachute were facing the cliff. And there was a full twist in my parachute lines because we both twisted in different directions. And so that rendered my parachute somewhat unflyable. It's called line twists. It's called line twists and an off heading. Those are the two malfunctions that were combined. I had an off heading and line twists, which were flying me at the cliff. At a, uh, the parachute is designed to open flying forward at 50, about 15 knots, 10 to 15 knots, depending on how you stow your brakes. Again, all physics that could take a lifetime to explain. But needless to say, I'm moving at the rock that I just jumped off with minimal time to react at pretty high speed with a malfunction in my parachute that makes it kind of unturnable, <clears throat> which is something I had prepared for. It, it's not like I was a, ignorant to the fact that that malfunction could happen. So this isn't going to make a lot of sense, but and skydiving, line twists are not a big deal because you're, there's no, no cliffs to run into. You're just in the middle of the big wide open sky. So you just wait for them to untwist and start flying your parachute. And base jumping, the emergency procedure for line twists is to reach above the twist and grab some lines above the twist and just pull down on them, which will which cause your parachute twist to you. turn. Yeah. Okay. To avoid the cliff. The problem with my malfunction is that the twists, so I did that. I reached the second it happened, I knew in my mind, okay, line twists, off heading, reach up above the line twist, grab a control line, and just yonk down on it. And I looked up, and you can see in the video, I have a, a POV GoPro video, but I'm like, hands up as high as they'll go, and the line twists are just too high, and I can't reach above them. And like, I'm looking up, realize I can't reach a control line, then I look down, and then it's like the cliff is just, approaching me too quickly and I slammed into it <laughs> and I as I as I slammed into the cliff um I I had a lot of thoughts my first thought was like this is how I'm gonna die because at that point when I had my accident in 2014 uh, about 80% of base jumping fatalities were due to a cliff strike like that exact event because it's pretty it's like a car crash you know, you Just hit so with violent. pretty high force. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> my engineering mind, my, my temptation for the first impact was to stick my arms and legs out to kind of absorb the impact. But in my head, I was like, I'm moving a little too quickly and I might like snap off my arms and legs if I do that. So like at the last second, I thought the best idea was to just kind of go spread eagle and try to like in increase my surface area. <laughs> to like decrease the pounds per square inch of force of impact. So like more surface area would be better. So anyway, I stuck my legs and arms kind of out. Like a starfish? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I didn't stick my hands out because I wanted my hands to be close to the control, parachute controls, but I stuck my elbows out. So as little, it's like, I kind of like starfished into the wall, which ended up being a great way to impact. Um, and <clears throat> I realized after the fact that that probably would have been how I died if I wasn't wearing a helmet. I had a heavy duty snowboarding helmet on that impacted the wall when I like starfished into it. And you can see a part of the video that that impact, my helmet hitting the wall broke off a chunk of rock about the size of my head. Wow. <laughs> and like, if I wasn't wearing the helmet, that would have just been my head like exploding like a watermelon probably on the wall, which is why people have died from those accidents. So like I starfished off the wall 
And I was thinking, I'm probably going to die. I'm probably going to die. I realized, okay, I'm not dead. Like I impacted. I was like, holy shit, still alive, still in the fight. Like, let's do this thing. Um, I can't believe that you're thinking about, you're, you're, you're like really processing all this in slow motion. Like I would be so frantic probably (laughs) that I would not be able to think about how to manage myself when it's all happening so fast. And you're like, okay, you're calculating the speed and the velocity and like the surface area. And like, I'm like, I would just be screaming and crying, you know? um, That's a good point. That's actually one of the things that, that I really found super fascinating after the fact was recounting my memories to myself. It felt like I had an hour's worth of thoughts in seven seconds like this whole event probably played out in less than 10 seconds i'd actually have to watch the video but in my mind i had like a lifetime worth of thoughts and activity going on like i'm dying i'm not dying you know calculate the force like impact this way impact that way and it it just happens so it's weird how time dilation you know happens in those life or death moments and you really feel like you have all the time the rest of your life (laughs) to think about it um so that's just the beginning. There's still more of the cliff strike accident. So the, the impact of my first impact of my parachute and myself hitting the, the wall actually pushed the line twist down far enough to where yeah. I could now reach above. I know, right? So I could now reach above and grab that control line I had been looking for. And in a split second, like the second I bounced off the wall, my eyes went to that spot to see if there was anything that I could do. I was like, good. I saw it. I grabbed it. I pulled down as hard as I could. And in my mind, again, at this point, I was thinking, that's the last of the cliff strike. I'm going to turn this parachute around and go land and high five Brandon. And like, we'll be at the pub, you know, it'll be great. And so I I grabbed the control line and pulled down really hard. And my parachute started to turn. Um, But I was losing altitude vertically because of the way instead the way I was turning the parachute with just a wad of control lines instead of like a normal turning mechanism. Like the combination of the malfunction just made it sink really quickly. So while I was still turning the parachute, I was losing altitude vertically really quick and the cliff started to bow out. Like I talked about, there was kind of an overhung portion of the cliff. Uh, so I probably impacted about five, 600 feet down the cliff. The parachute started to turn around and I was... I was turning, but I was still sinking and the combination, I just didn't have enough altitude or separation to fully turn the parachute around before uh, I kind of impacted the cliff again. And I was turned this time with my right side facing the cliff because I was about to turn the parachute to the left. And uh, I just ran out of altitude before hitting the cliff again. And on that second impact, I clipped my left leg on the wall because my right leg was kind of folded up under me. And this is kind of stuff that I realized through watching the video afterward. But all I knew was that I'm about to hit this cliff again. And uh, the second I impacted again, I kind of realized I had lost all control authority. And like, I was kind of along for the ride at this point. So at that point, like you said, you're like, I'd just be kind of like freaking out. Like, uh, that's exactly what happened. I was like, okay, I can't do anything anymore. So fetal position, like it's time to just hit the fetal position and ride this thing out and and just like hope to God I'm alive at the bottom. And uh, so that's what I did. I just kind of like went into fetal mode, bounced down the cliff for one more time, 
And then it kind of like flipped me backwards and I ended up impacting the talus facing downhill on my butt, ankles, like feet first um, with kind of no, with about 30 feet, the last like 30 feet, I just kind of fell because my parachute was like in a wad at that point. From and being you're probably tangled up with your lines too, aren't you? Yeah, every it was just like a mess of of lines and gear and and um, and I impacted the ground pretty hard and again and uh, and and the dust settled and so the dust settled and I I was again I was like holy shit I'm alive oh my gosh um, I could instantly feel that my legs I instantly suspected that both of my legs were probably broken in some way and that I had probably some other injuries, but I knew that I was like coherent and alive. So the first thing I did was scream as loud as I could, I'm good to, to try to get it. So Brandon could hear me because my, my worry was Brandon, my friends on the top can't see me. Brandon just watched me have a bad cliff strike, probably thinks I'm dead and everyone's about to call 911. <laughs> And I didn't want that to happen because I wanted to assess my injuries first. And we also talked ahead of time that we really didn't want to get a helicopter involved if we didn't have to. So I, I screamed as loud as I could, I'm good. And Brandon heard me, but Sam and Stormy on the top didn't hear me. Um, but I'm pretty sure the order this went in is I pulled out my phone and called Brandon just to give him a real quick rundown, I was like, hey, I had a cliff strike. I think my legs are broken, but don't call the heli. I think we can do a self-rescue. And then like, as I would, and he was like, okay, okay, okay. And as he was saying, I was saying that, my phone started ringing and it was Sam calling from the top to find out what happened. And I hung up on Brandon and talked to Sam and I was like, hey, cliff strike, pretty gnarly. I think I broke my legs. Don't call the heli. I think we can do a self-rescue, but like start driving down. And he was like, okay, sounds good. And so, you know, that's kind of like the first pause point. Like the accident had happened, took a quick survey, still alive, probably some injuries, but everyone on the team was now notified, like, we're going to try to do a self-rescue. And um, that was about nine in the morning. I didn't end up getting to the emergency room in Rifle until about 6 a.m. the next day. Oh, my gosh. So the self-rescue Dude, you are took savage. <laughs> the, self- <laughs> the self-rescue took a lot longer than expected, um, but I, there are definitely some high points that I want to hit. So uh, we it, we were probably the best prepared crew to deal with this kind of thing in my mind. I, I was like, okay, this is what I've been training for. Like, I'm prepared for this backcountry shit. Now it's time to go to work. Like, we were all. Pre- I was kind of stoked. I was like. I was like, yeah, this sucks, but like we can finally put our our all of our fucking combat training to use. Like we all had like like first aid training, you know, trauma training, uh, um, you know, just lots of military training. So we, we were a really well equipped equipped group of people to deal with a pretty gnarly situation. And um, and so the plan was Brandon was gonna start climbing up the talus to me. I was going to start trying to scooch down the talus to him. And then Sam and Stormy were going to drive around. And once they got to the landing area, start hiking in to meet up with us. I anticipated being off the mountain before the afternoon. Like 
Like it's 9 a.m., a normal jump on this thing, we'd be off within a couple hours. This talus isn't that big. You know, we can get out of here. Brandon will get up to me and he'll just carry me off like Superman. And it'll be fine. Uh, but none of that ended up being true. <laughs> um, and the one of the, the huge contributing factors to the, the slow pace of the rescue was that the terrain of the talus was such that no one could carry me. Anyone like I was pretty much uh, like resigned to, to scooch myself off the mountain while they just stood there and tried to make sure no boulders fell on me or I didn't slide off a cliff because it was like 45 degrees or more steep, unconsolidated bullshit. That's what I call it. It was just like this screech off like nightmare field of boulders and gravel ranging from like super SUV. Loose. Yeah, to- you know exactly the type of terrain. Like super loose, you're not supposed to hike there. Humans are not designed to be in this area. You know, Ted Davenport crashed there, but he got pl- plucked off by a helicopter. Steph landed way lower. Um, like it is like no humans have ever been there or should be there. And I'm we're trying to pull off a rescue on this shit. And so, so my first order of business was to do a quick, uh, use all my medical training and stuff to do a quick like like self-scan because the big concern at that point was we're not going to do a self-rescue if I'm dying of internal bleeding because like then I'm going to bleed out up here. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that there was no internal bleeding um, so that we could go through with the self-rescue because if there's no internal bleeding or like serious injuries that were life-threatening, I could deal with the pain and be up there as long as it would require to, to do the self-rescue. Um, so I, I did a quick self-body scan like head to toe, assessed that my left leg was completely unusable. It was just so, so painful to put any weight on it that I knew it was pretty much toast. And uh, that my right leg was in severe pain, but I could at least use, put some weight on my right heel. Um, My right shoulder, I think was separated when I impacted the wall with my right side. And it was like, there was, was bleeding some and it was in a lot of pain, but it was like, it was like re-back in position, but it had clearly been injured in the, the impact. And then my, I had a rib, I think, dislocate on my right side because it was like really painful. And I felt it pop real bad when I tried to put weight on my hands. And I think that was it popping back into place because it like, it was like audibly popped. It was really painful. And then it hurt way less after it popped. So I was like, I think I fixed it. Um, <laughs> so, so the status of the condition was like right leg, somewhat usable, left arm, totally fine, left leg and right arm, not usable. So I was like, uh, if you like make an X, like one's one section of the X was usable. So that was actually lucky because it allowed me to scooch is what I call it. Like I could scooch on my left hand and my right heel and not put any weight on my left leg and my right arm. So that, that gave me some mobility, which was awesome. But in the terrain and that unconsolidated scree bullshit, I couldn't get very far. So Brandon didn't end up getting to me climbing up the mountain. So I was trying to get down to him. He was trying to get up to me. Long story short, I barely got anywhere. I essentially didn't even move um, for hours. And he finally got up to me, I think, around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. (laughs) And we had jumped at 9 a.m. And I'd been sitting baking in the south-facing sun of this talus with one bottle of water in my pocket um, and that reminds me of the first aid kit thing. So, uh, know exactly the purpose of every item in your first aid kit. 
I pulled out that first aid kit that like gave me the peace of mind of like, oh, I'm smart. I have a first aid kit. I might as well have not even had a first aid kit. Cause like, what the hell is a store-bought first aid kit going to do with two broken legs? You know? Band-aids. Yeah. It was like, like band-aids. One alcohol pad. Exactly. So, so I pulled out the sleeve of like 10 ibuprofen, just like kind of down that and then like toss, toss the rest of it. <laughs> this is completely useless. I think there was some actually medical tape that I used to, um, to kind of, uh, stabilize my shins. I was wearing shin guards and boots. So I was like, I'm just going to leave those on and let, let Brandon build a, a splint with this tape. Um, but they were already pretty much splinted cause they were just in shin guards and went to high top boots. So it was pretty solid. Um, but Brandon got up to me at like two in the afternoon and his assessment was there's no way you can get down what I just came up. Mm-hmm. So we have to find a different way down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was the first Apollo 13 moment. That's what I call a lot of incidents in this where, you know, it's like shit's going wrong and you have to just make a decision. And I was like, okay, we have no idea if there's another way off this mountain, but I trust you. Like you say, I can't get down, like done decision made. We're going to find another way. Let's start going. So from skiers, like looking down the mountains, skiers, right. He came up and he said, that's no go. So we were like, all right, we'll go skiers left. Scooters left. So... <laughs> So uh, real, a lot happened in the next couple of hours, but basically about four in the afternoon, we were going to, we had kind of funneled into this like creek, like dry creek bed that went down the talus into the forest. And we had no idea what, where it went because it was just uncharted territory. And uh, we eventually hit a, about a 15 to 20 foot vertical, like water, what, what would have been a waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like all right that's the end of the road like we made it as far as we can now we just have to wait on the rescue team to get up here uh while i was waiting on the talus i basically called my brother and our fifth roommate joe and both of them joe that, my was, brother, painting? Joe that was painting and uh he's like like um, i don't know he looks like a gi joe he's like super chiseled does crossfit every day uh, and then my brother, who's like a super rad rock climber, and I love him to death. It's just me and him. He's my older brother. Um, he lived up in Fort Collins at the time, which is, they were both four hours away. So Fort Collins is four hours that way. Colorado Springs is four hours the other direction. But I was like, Joe and Dylan, Dylan's my brother, like start driving here because we'll probably be off the mountain by the time you get here. But just in case, grab all the climbing gear you can find. I, you know, we're doing a rescue and just start driving a rifle. <laughs> So, um, so Brandon and I got, were on the way down, got to this impasse where we couldn't get down any further. And Sam and Stormy were kind of by themselves because Dylan and Joe hadn't arrived yet. And they were climbing in and they radioed to us and said that they had an impasse that they couldn't get up. Oh, no. So there was the same direct, the opposite direction. There was about a 20 to 30 foot cliff up, like vertical up that they couldn't get up because the way base jumpers get out is there are fixed ropes at the top of that cliff that they throw down when they hike out because you jump from the top so you don't have to hike in from the bottom and the fixed ropes had been pulled up to the top so they couldn't like free solo this cliff because they didn't have any climbing gear so i was like okay you guys just wait on dylan my brother to get there with the climbing gear like he'll set up a route on that thing (laughs) and it'll be fine and uh so we're all kind of in a holding pattern so the, the second apollo 13 moment uh, 
where we just kind of MacGyvered it was Brandon and I were sitting there baking in the sun, hungry as fuck. Am I allowed to cuss in this? I think so. Sure. And uh, you can do whatever you want. You're so sad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we were like, I was like, we might have to set up camp here. One of the decisions we made early on was that we were not going to ditch any gear. Like we were going to drag my parachute out with me, even though it was torn up and shredded because, you know, we were like, we don't know what we're going to need. So this was the first instance where it clicked into my head as we were sitting there with this 15 foot drop in front of us. Like, oh, fuck, we have we have climbing gear. We have a harness, my parachute harness. We have lines, the lines of the parachute. Like we could set up a rappel down this cliff and keep moving. And so I pitched the idea to him and he was like, he's like, fuck it, I'm down. So we like jerry rigged the, the parachute to become like, I would, I got in the harness, like a climbing harness almost. And he just kind of lowered me down on the lines. And since my legs are broken, I just kind of like faced out and let my back kind of like bounce off the rock. And then the plan was for him to just like kind of hang down and drop because it was it was not quite too big for a person like him to kind of like down climb a little bit. But in my condition, I was obviously useless. So that's what we did. We, we like self repelled me on my parachute down the thing and then got him down somehow. And like it was like, all right, game's back on. Like we're, we're keeping moving. And uh, a couple hundred yards down the creek bed, we hit another one, an even bigger one. So um, that's where we actually got, we was like, we can't get down this one. But it was a big success to get down the first one. So we finally hit an actual no shit, like stopping point. And the climbing team, uh, the rescue team coming up from the bottom, also hadn't scaled their cliff yet. So we set a, we call it in the military a bingo time. Like if we hit this time and the rescue team hasn't reached the, the injured team by X time, we're just going to call the helicopter or like report this. Um, and again, this probably isn't true, but we determined that if we didn't have the rescue team in contact with the, the injured guys, myself by 4.45 PM, that uh, that would be our bingo time to call the helicopter because we decided that sunset was around 6.45. And if the helicopter was gonna come in from Grand Junction, which normally happened, they would need about two hours of sunlight to like pull this thing off. So we were like trying to figure out what the rescue team was thinking. In hindsight, the two hours probably was not enough time, Hmm. but that's just what we decided. Um, But fast forwarding, my brother got there. He got the climbing gear. he He climbed up, like he was in like save my brother mode. So he kind of really was just like, like hard charging. He's like, my brother's up there with broken legs. I'm gonna go get him. So he ended up, I think, just like... Is he like, older or younger than you? He's two years older than me, but we're super close. He's actually 20 months older than me. He's like, my baby brother, I'm going, I'm going to get him, whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, what I'm told, is just basically free soloed that fixed rope cliff because uh, there was no real pro to set and threw the fixed lines down to the other guys, but got past it, got past that obstacle, and the rescue team was like higher up where Brandon had come up the right, like skiers, right? And like a movie, literally at, at uh, like 4.44 and 59 seconds, we heard these like faint voices off in the distance that were like the rescue team shouting. And we were like, ah, we started screaming and they like crested this ridge and we like made eye contact and everyone was freaking out. It was like, all right, 4.45, we made the bingo time. Like we're not calling the heli, we're fucking smoking it. Um, and so like, 
yeah, now the rescue team was together. We had all the climbing gear. Brandon and I could now get down this next cliff because we had like, you know, robes, harnesses, ATCs, all of the things. That's actually, that's actually, this is actually one of the crux, cruxes of the story, but I'm not going to belabor it too much here. Uh, but we had almost everything and I, we laugh about it all the time because the, we were like setting up the rappel. I put on the harness. We were going to get down this cliff. I was going to do some broke leg rappels. Like, like I said, just with my legs kind of dangling and, uh, and we pulled out everything out of the bags. We ate food, drank Gatorade. It was great. Everyone celebrated. And my brother just like looked so dejected as he was trying to set up this rappel. And I was like, what is wrong? Why do you look, what does that look on your face? And he was like, dude, I can't find a carabiner. Like, I don't think I brought a single carabiner. And his, so in his rush to like grab all of his climbing gear, we had ropes, harnesses, and usually you have like 85 carabiners hanging off every harness, right? right. So he just assumed yeah. there was, there were carabiners in his shit. And then we finally get up there and there's no beaners. Like, and so that's, that's, that's the crux moment. That's like Apollo 13, that shit. So, and so like, we, we like, all cried about it like real quick we were like oh are you i was like there's no way there's no carabiners like we're climbers we're military there's carabiners on fucking everything like are you sure you don't have one in your pocket and so like everyone tore shit apart and we literally had none except for one like inch and a half like one that says you know for a water bottle that's like do not use this to repel or you will surely die (laughs) kind of thing and we were like well let's try that because it's all we got and uh it all it did well, we tried, but all it did was just tear apart and gum up the ATC because we're using ATC to repel. So it was like totally useless. So, you know, basically I was like, again, I, I was in, in go mode. So I was like, all right, doesn't matter what we don't have. What we do have is some shit. Let's figure out how to use it. You know, so like, let's do the Apollo 13 thing and fit, take what we do have and get the fuck down this cliff. I realized that there was a, a plastic keeper on my harness that I could thread, like it would take a lot longer, but I could thread the rope through the ATC around that plastic keeper on my harness and out the other end of the ATC and kind of use that like a rappel. And I was like, oh, this'll like this will be a one-time use because it's creating friction on that piece of plastic, but like I'm never gonna use this gear again. We're just trying to get off the mountain. Like we can sacrifice safety a little bit for for what we need to do. So we set that up. That was our first plan was like use that plastic thing on my harness, just like tie this rope off to an anchor. Everyone else can down climb the rope hand over hand. But you couldn't. But but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so we did that. So so I set that up and like got down this twenty five foot cliff. But it was like not a very good setup. It was very frictionful, like very jaggy, uh, painful, and just like but it like worked. Got everyone down that section. And and the the way the terrain was running out at this point is the creek actually started to fill with water but there were more and more of these like full stop 20 foot drops. So we had to do that rappel thing like multiple times. The sun went down, uh, you know, it got to be the point where it was like now 9 a.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And we're still just like slowly, like we were now getting to parts where Joe could carry me or like someone could carry me through the water. But there was a lot of the time when I just had to like scoot through the water and, uh, and that ibuprofen isn't doing a damn thing at this point. Yeah, yeah, no, my legs, I honestly, like, I think my legs went numb. Like, all the pain just kind of went away because your body just kind of accepts that you're not going to be getting out of this anytime soon. But, I mean, we were just, it was, like, steady as she goes. It was, like, we're just going to keep doing this until we get out. 
So my so I've already talked about all the points. Set boundaries. Be mindful of lawyering. Beware of weather windows pushing your decision making. Apollo thirteen. That shit. Know the exact purpose of every item in your first aid kit, and get friends like mine slash know your crew. So the last one, uh, you know, is obviously like you don't want to put your friends. I don't want to ever put my friends again in those, those kind of situations to be risking their lives. There was one point uh, where we had gotten down this like like I had wrapped down one of these cliffs, and the other guys found a certain a way to get around it on the talus. But my friend Joe, who's my best friend. Um, he's like my brother and I's third brother. He almost got crushed by like a man-sized boulder. Like after, like he was just, he got to the base of this thing that he was scrambling down and it was in the middle of the night and I couldn't see him, but I just heard this like earth shake, like felt the earth shake and heard this huge impact. And I was like, like he walked, I saw him walk into my head, blow of my headlamp, just looking like real spooked. And I was like, dude, what the fuck just happened? And he's like, yeah, I just almost got crushed by a boulder, but like, let's just keep moving. So it's like those kind of things that I just would never Talus want to put my... Talus and boulder fields are no joke. You know, they're no yeah. joke. They're huge. Like like you're saying, like car-sized boulders in some cases that can just, once they start to roll or once they get dislodged by humans moving through the talus, things start to loosen up and then bigger things start to fall over. So it can be really scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the like it can be... The story can sound kind of benign, but like... Or maybe not, but it, it, not the benign. terrain was super unforgiving. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like my, my friends were absolutely putting their own lives at risk to do this rescue. Like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like everyone was in danger. And I take you know, full personal responsibility for putting them in that situation. And, um, and they were willing to do it. And uh, the final crux, there's multiple cruxes, but like this part of the story kind of makes me get a little watery eyed, but I love it. But the, the last, like the final... The final cliff, the thing that my brother soloed to get to me that, that the other gang couldn't get up, that was the final obstacle to get out. And when we got to it in the middle of the night, we knew we were close. But there was no way for me to downclimb the ropes hand over hand. And so we had to set up the rappel for me down that. And the only section to rappel from was like a pretty, a pretty uh, powerful waterfall because it like funneled into this point. It was pitch dark. All we have is headlamps. We're like searching at the top of this waterfall in this pool, pretty big pool, probably about like, like knee to waist deep and uh, at parts. And we're just trying to find an anchor, something that we can anchor the rappel system to, to get me off and could not find anything like tried to hike up and in, back into the Creek, find boulders. Cause the, the walls are pretty steep. And so we didn't have like trad gear to like wedge in a crack or set up an anchor. We just had like, no carabiners and jerry-rig shit. So what ended up happening is after we like kind of had a little meeting where I was just sitting in the pool of water because I couldn't stand, I remember just looking up at the headlamps and everyone kind of just like being totally toast, totally like dejected, but like also just like super determined. We're so close. And so my brother was like, all right, I'll be the anchor. He was like, I'm going to tie the rope around my waist and you're just going to wrap off me. Are you kidding me? He, <laughs> he's, he is in close. Well, so I think it's your brother and my brother, which are in close fighting for the best brother award right now. Yeah. No, he, he's he's an absolute boss. Oh and the funny gosh. thing is I, I weigh probably, well, I weigh uh, at this point, I weighed at least 20 or 30 pounds more than him. Um but like, you know, he had that brother strength 
And, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's what the plan was. He was tied, tied the rope off to himself, sat down kind of in the back of the pool. And then Brandon, who was the guy who jumped before me, kind of like backpacked on him, just like looped his arms around my brother and like anchored him down a little more. And then, um, oh, another thing that we were doing on these repels is Joe was, was going down ahead of me and basically standing below me as a spotter in case the system gave way, he was just going to catch me. So that's what we had done in the past. So he, Joe down climbed the ropes, got to the bottom, was like standing at the base of the waterfall. Um, Dylan was setting up the anchor, my brother. And it was just kind of one of those moments, like, you know, like this is the last thing we got to do. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we high-fived or whatever, did the whole like, hey, I love you. And, and I scooched over to the edge of the cliff edge of the waterfall the second that i had to talk myself up to scooch my butt off earth and like into the free fall environment of the waterfall felt exactly like a base jump it was like really nerve-wracking you had to like count down like okay three two one hold your breath like and so like i scooched off the edge of the earth into like the, the overhanging waterfall water pouring into my lap you know my headlamp just like illuminating into the darkness black hole below and like the system held <clears throat> so it was that moment of if I go, like, there's a, there's a very real possibility that I'm going to scooch off this and pull everyone down with me and we're all just going to go flying. But, like, the system held. I took a split second to realize that the system held. And then I was like, I got to get down this thing as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. So I just, like, fast roped it, like, as fast as I could into Joe's arms. Like, he caught me like a little baby. G. We were Joe. all soaked. Yeah, G.I. Joe. He, uh, we were all soaked, like, water pouring down. And it was just kind of, it was too loud to really talk or anything because of the waterfall. But like, that's kind of the, the real end of the saga. Like at that point, we kind of knew like we're safe. All of this Jerry rig shit worked. No one died. It was Joe pretty much like a fireman carried me to the car, got to the emergency room. And that's like I said, at, the, at that point, it was about six or something in the morning like close to sunrise i think the sun had already been coming up such a long time (laughs) yeah yeah well but now you can share this like you're you're doing right now you know you're sharing your experience with others and so i ideally people can learn from this incident from you that's exactly why one of the big reasons i wanted to start talking about it uh i started talking about it within the base jumping community because i wanted to share my lessons learned from the base jumping side of things because as we talked about in the beginning, there were so many things that I, mistakes I made, but very like subtle mistakes that I've seen other people make um, that led to that. So like, I definitely share that story with people in their first season of base. Like, hey, don't, don't do what I did. I should have been a statistic. You know, unfortunately, not long after my accident, someone died of a cliff strike, um, pretty similar to what happened to me. And so I was like, I got to tell this story because like, you know, people make these accidents and I easily could have been one of them, uh, one of the statistics. So that's definitely the, the upside of sharing it is like, you know, we do gnarly stuff in these sports, but, um, and we take calculated risks, <clears throat> but there's so much to be, to be cautious of and to be mindful of. This is my, this is the first base jumping story on the show. And, and I wonder if, if, you know, I, I wonder if there's a reason for that. If people in the base community, I mean, for n- number one, the base community, the base jumping community is so small right it's so small and so maybe it's such a it's such a niche community that people just don't want to talk about the incidents that happen there or maybe there aren't maybe there 
are enough incidents in the ratio of climb of base jumpers to incidents and maybe that's mm-hmm. why i don't know why but i it does make me think about why i've never had a base um a base story you know what i mean so i'm so psyched that you're the first one um i i totally understand what you're saying i've listened to the podcast you know i think since the beginning if not when i started got into it i went back and, and started listening to them um, but yeah i i always I kind of, I find that interesting too, that the communities are so intertwined, but also you don't hear a lot of stuff about base accidents on the mainstream adventure podcasts. And one of the things that inspired me to kind of uh, share this story on this platform is there was a, for one of the first ones I heard was uh, one of the podcasts, a couple of the podcasts covered a story recently where a climber rescued a base jumper oh, yep. off mm-hmm. Tombstone mm-hmm. In, uh, in Moab. And that kind of was the initial bridge of the gap in the genres in my mind. I was like, okay, like, I think my story has a place here. It does. Um, it totally does. And I know. appreciate you, you dreaming that up. And what's interesting about that story is I asked River, I was like, hey, River, do you think that that, you know, that jumper would be interested in being on the show to tell their perspective of the incident? And she said, nope, definitely not. He wants to hmm. be, or they, they want to be, I guess you know it's he, they want to be <laughs> anonymous. <that> <laughs> um, and, and I totally respected that, you know, no pressure. I don't ever want to pressure anybody to be on the show and share their experience, but it is a place for people to allow themselves to be vulnerable and courageous just because what you're doing by sharing your story is minimizing future outdoor accidents, right? Um, it's like letting go of the ego and just sharing that experience with others. But this person, I'm not saying this person ha- has a big ego. I'm not saying that at all. But I think that, you know, there's multiple reasons why people don't want to to be, to, to share, which is fine. Well, I will say to kind of, to close for the first many months, maybe years after the accident, there was definitely an element of shame of me getting in over my head in my first season mm-hmm. and like, you know, being looked at uh, negatively by like the big guns in the sport which which was a, a barrier to sharing but i noticed the second i st- i put a post there used to be a website called basejumper.com that had like a you have to be like certified in the crew to have access to that so we could have like conversations that we knew wouldn't leak and once i posted it in there um like some really like big guns in the sport like big names like were like oh dude that's awesome thank you for sharing and that was like i was like oh like they're not just going to shit on me and make fun of me, you know, we're, they we're here to share knowledge. Yes. You know? <laughs> that's so cool. So you, by you posting that you have already, you know, triggered hopefully a domino effect of other people sharing and, and, and becoming more vulnerable and courageous with this whole process of discovering the intricacies of the safety behind a sport. You know what I mean? It's, it's amazing. So thank you. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This has been really awesome. Well, I learned a ton about a sport I knew nothing about. Thanks, Derek, for sharing your experience with us. If you learned something from this episode or any of the Sharpen episodes you listen to, please tell a friend or family member. Help me get these stories out into our community so we can all minimize future outdoor accidents. And don't forget, you can donate to the show via PayPal or by becoming a Patreon member. There are new monthly bonus episodes coming to Patreon members soon. If you've been begging for more episodes, you finally got what you asked for. More content, more stories, more outdoor lessons to learn from. Thank you to Rocky Talkies and the American Alpine Institute for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. 
the American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community, exploring the many ways we define climbing and the ways that climbing defines us. In recent episodes, the American Alpine Club podcast interviewed Alex Honnold about his obsession with speed and link-ups, got access fun talking about the tumultuous state of bolting and wilderness, and featured an inspiring conversation about equity and climbing with Genevieve Walker. You can find episodes like this and more on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. Subscribe today. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.